Rest of you, go ahead and get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. And as we continue through uh, the Bible this year, as we continue through for the next several weeks the, the teachings and the life of Jesus, we, we come to what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a lot of you may remember several years ago, uh, we went through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we weren't there very long. Uh, 18 months we spent in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and eight weeks we spent on the Beatitudes. We are not going to do that now. We're going to spend one week on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, but there's a lot of wonderful truth in these chapters and in this story, so uh, we're going to have to move really, really fast or be here for a really, really long time, and I have a lunch date with my mom at 1.30, so we're going to move really, really fast, all right? Now, this teaching of Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, but this is the first public message that Jesus gave in his earthly ministry. He's, he's been baptized. He's been tempted to 40 days in the desert. He's began to call his disciples. He's performed a couple miracles. But this is the first time he is sitting down and teaching uh, the word of God or teaching his, his, his word to his followers, to the crowd that gathers with him. And the Sermon on the Mount, it, it spans from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. It's got some incredible teachings of Jesus. Some of the most famous teachings of Jesus are found in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, when he, he begins this message, he begins by asking a, answering a question that mankind has been asking since the fall. How can I be happy? How can I be happy? How can I live a joyful, happy life? How many of y'all want to be happy all the time? All right, some of y'all apparently want to be miserable. That's, that's cool. I remember when we were on vacation, I was watching the, the service and Brother Henderson asked, I think he asked how many veterans there were and like nobody raised their hand. I like, I know we got veterans in here. I'm like I should have told him uh, when I, when you ask our congregation a question, they don't answer. I don't know if it's because they're not paying attention or what, but anyway, so we all want to be happy. None of us want to live a miserable life. Now I know sometimes we know people that seem like, seems like that's what they want to do because they always seem to be miserable. They seem to thrive on drama and heartache. But deep down, every one of us wants to be happy. But the problem is, most of us struggle with being happy all the time. We struggle with having joy throughout our life. And so Jesus... He begins his Sermon on the Mount. He, he opens up his first public message by telling us eight things we need to do or eight things we need to have to be happy. He says, blessed. Now, the Greek word that he uses, blessed, is the Greek word makaros, and it literally means to be joyful to be happy. The Jews use this Greek word to describe someone 
who was blessed by God. Someone who had the, the blessing of God on their life was Marcos, was happy, was joyful, was this blessed word that Jesus gives us. So as we look at these sayings, what we are seeing is Jesus describing what the heart of a child of God looks like. What it looks like to be blessed by God, to be a child of God. So get in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. Now, we're going to see why at the end of the message, this verse is so important. It's important that Jesus goes up into a mountain to teach the crowd what he's going to teach them. So let's keep reading verse number two. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this beatitude right here is the, the hub, the core of every other beatitude. Every other beatitude hinges on understanding this one. So we are going to spend the majority of our time on this beatitude, what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit does not mean someone who's always sad, always depressed. I think of, of Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Y'all know Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore? Eeyore is just always miserable. I don't know. Life's bad. That's not poor in spirit. That's just a Debbie Downer. And no one likes a Debbie Downer. So poor in spirit doesn't mean having an Eeyore attitude where everything is always terrible. Poor in spirit means that daily you embrace your dependence on God. You understand that everything you need in life comes from God. You're not depending on your own abilities. You're not depending on your own talents. You're not depending on your own provisions. You are depending on God for everything. Poor in spirit means that you don't feel you have to be sufficient in your own resources or sufficient in yourself to face the challenges of life. Now, it doesn't have to do with financial resources. It is a life lived in complete dependence on God for everything you need and everything you have. Now, in the Greek, this word for poor, there were two terms. The first term for poor, it referred to those who struggled financially. Anybody that type of poor today? Yeah. Uh, who struggle financially. People, and now in this, this phrase, it meant people who didn't have enough to really even survive. Now, I know most of us here live paycheck to paycheck. If you're a secret millionaire, I'm mad at you for not telling me that secret. But most of us live from paycheck to paycheck. But all of us, 
we, we can survive. We have, we have houses of roofs over our head. We have food. And if you don't, let us know. We can help you. You know, we, we have resources that we can survive. So it's not like we're destitute. We're not, you know, that bad off. But that's what that word means. Those who didn't even have enough to survive financially. The second term for poor refers to someone that is an outcast in society. Someone that was despised by the culture. Jesus is talking about the second type of poor. The outcast. The despised. Those who are despised for how weak they are. He says those are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. That that doesn't make sense to us. If you're an outcast, you're despised for how weak you are. We don't want to be weak. None of us want to be weak. We want to be strong. We want to be self-sufficient. We want people to think that we can do whatever we need to do. And Jesus says, that's not the type of person they inherit the kingdom of God. Those who realize how weak they are. Those who realize how needy they are, are those who inherit the kingdom of God. And all eight of these teachings, they, they comp, this, this is what makes up the core of all these teachings. Now, we can look at it and say, well, so i got to believe I'm, I'm weak and, and helpless to inherit the kingdom of God? Speaking of the gospel, yeah. If you are sufficient in your own righteousness to get to heaven, you're not going to get to heaven. But if you realize that your goodness, your righteousness is as filthy rags, and that there's nothing you can do to earn the favor of God, and you are weak and hopeless and helpless to save yourself, but you understand that Jesus came for you, he lived a sinless life for you, he died for you and rose again for you, and that is what gets you to heaven. You realize your weakness and you are sufficient on his death, burial, and resurrection for salvation, that is being poor in spirit for salvation. But it's more than just for salvation. It's more than saying, I I can't save myself, so I trust in Jesus to save me for salvation, but I'll do everything else in my own life. See, that's where most Christians fail. We trust God for the most important thing in our life, our eternal soul, but we'll take care of everything else. That's not poor in spirit. That's poor in spirit in one area, and let's be honest, that's an important area. But all these other ones are important as well. Being poor in spirit is is trusting God for everything. And Jesus, he uses parables throughout his teachings to really explain these truths. And we're we're not going to flip to them and look at them because, again, i got to cram eight weeks of teaching in one sermon. So... We're not going to turn to them. I'm just going to tell you the parables. You probably understand most of them. The first one's found in Luke 18. It's a story about the two men who go up to the temple to pray. One is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this before. Tax collectors in this time were the most hated people in the culture. We all hate the IRS, but not like they hated these guys. These guys were Jews who had been hired by the Roman government to go around and collect taxes from every other Jew, and they would always take more than they needed. If you were supposed to take $100 for taxes, they would take like $500, give the Roman government their their share, and keep the rest of themselves. So they were exploiting their own people. They were traitors. They were hated 
by the culture. This tax collector goes up to pray, and then there's the Pharisee. The Pharisees were esteemed in the culture. They were seen as the religious elite. These were the ones who, who they, if anyone walked with God, these guys walked with God. They, were, they did everything right. They fasted. They prayed. They looked the part. People looked at them and said, these people are righteous. That tax collector is a worthless, pathetic sinner who we hate and despise. The tax collector, when he goes into the temple to pray, he is so ashamed of his sinfulness. He doesn't approach the altar. He doesn't even lift his eyes to look at it. He stays in the back and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee, and read, again, we're not going to turn to it, but he goes to the, to the front he puffs up his chest, and the Bible says he prays to himself. He doesn't pray to God. He prays to himself and says, I am so glad I'm not like people like this guy. I'm not like this pathetic, worthless sinner. I'm righteous. I fast. I pray. I give my income to the poor. God is lucky to have me. Jesus says, the tax collector, the sinner, the person that we would all hate, he went away righteous in the sight of God. The Pharisee went away righteous in himself. He went away in his self-righteousness. The religious man walked out in his own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. But the tax collector, the one who was poor in spirit, he left with the righteousness of God credited to his account. Here's this, what Jesus is telling us. God only fills empty hands. God doesn't fill your hands if they're full. If you're walking around in your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and you think, I got this. I can do this myself. I'm capable. I'm able. I'm, I'm righteous in my own righteousness. If you walk around with full hands, God says, I'm not going to feel that. But if you walk to God, walk around in your relationship with God and say, God, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Those are the hands that God fills. If you poor, feel poor in, in righteousness, you can receive the gift of righteousness. That applies to every area of your life. Parents who feel they are capable of raising their children on their own will never experience the power of God in their parenting. It isn't poor parenting that messes up kids. It's confidence in your own parenting and your own wisdom where you say, I don't need God. I don't need the principle of the Bible. I just need what I have because I'm a good parent. That's what messes up kids because you are a parent saying, God, I don't need you. I can handle this myself. What good parents are those that say, God, I don't know what to do. I know you gave them to me, but I don't know what to do. I need your help. Those are the parents that experience the power of God. Those who feel capable and own power 
and their own wisdom and ministry never experienced the power of God in their ministry. Those who feel capable in their relationships and their, their career and their own wisdom, they never experience the power of God in those areas. It is when we depend on God, not in ourselves, for provision, for power, for wisdom, that we have access to the wisdom and the power and the provision of God. You know, God only fills empty hands. God wants us to be a people that are poor in ourselves so we're rich in relying on him. You know, most people, we spend our entire lives trying to be anything but poor in spirit. We want to be rich in spirit. We want to feel like we are sufficient for the task, like we have it under control and we don't need to be afraid of going to the future, but that cuts us off from the help of God and it corrupts our spirit. See, being, being rich in yourself, it makes us proud and distasteful to other people. The religious man despises other people he sees because he thinks they're not as good as me. They're not as capable as me. So I disdain them. I hate them because they're not like me. When you are proud because you are rich in self, you live an endless life of comparison and competition. C.S. Lewis said uh, this about pride. He said to, that pride is the essence of competition. He said, to pride, it does, does not matter that I am smart, only that I am smarter than you. It doesn't matter that I'm good looking, only that I'm better looking than you. For this reason, proud people can never get along. People of other vices get along. Drunks like to drink together. Immoral people like to brag to each other about their exploits. But proud people always hate each other because their pride is always in conflict with someone else's pride. So what C.S. Lewis is saying here, the best way to tell if you have a pride problem is if someone else's pride bothers you. If their pride, well, they think they're so better than me. They're not better than me. I'm, you both got a pride problem. Proud people cannot get along. They constantly fight each other. When we become rich in ourselves, we become self-focused. In the story, the Pharisee, he, again, read the scriptures in Luke. He doesn't say he prays to God. He prays to himself. He prays to himself because he is all he thinks about. He's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about how gracious God is to him, how good God is. He's thinking about how good I am. God, you're lucky to have me. You're lucky to have someone so righteous and religious and proper. So he prays to himself. You know, our society is very me-focused. There are over one million selfies posted to the internet every single day day every day one million pictures of people with a duck face or whatever they're doing just let me let me show you how great i am let me show you how pretty i am you know twitter instagram and facebook they are not designed to help you show people how poor in spirit you are they're designed to show you show people 
how great your life is. You know, people, they only post the awesome parts of their life. They only post the best of their life so that people get jealous and admire them. You know, we just got back from vacation and we posted a lot of pictures of vacation. We had a great time uh, going to the beach and, and just swimming in the water and hiking. And we, had a, we had a wonderful time and we posted a lot of pictures of the great times we had. We didn't post one picture of the times we were fighting on vacation. You fought on vacation? Yeah, we have kids. And they are annoying sometimes. And they fight each other. And they complain. And it makes me, makes me so mad. We get down there and we're having a good time and they're complaining about something. I'm like, you know how much money it costs us to get your butt down here? And to get you this nice place to stay and to have this fun with you and to get, yeah, you may be having a pizza, but that's because that's all we can afford after doing this for you. We didn't post those. We don't show people, you know, a strangling Connor because he just won't shut up. We didn't do that. Well, you don't know because we didn't post a picture of it. People don't post the bad. They only post the good. This Pharisee was praying to himself. If people heard him telling himself how awesome he was, he probably would have been embarrassed. But the worst part of being rich in yourself is you become ungrateful because you are always focused on what you think you are entitled to. You feel you always deserve more than you're getting, and it makes you mad because God's not giving it to you. Ungrateful people are always unhappy people. Let me repeat that again. Majesty. Ungrateful people are always unhappy people. Pick it on majesty because we were at prayer advance. He was complaining about his bed. I don't know, this bed ain't nice. Like, hey, it's better than, you know, under a bridge. Be grateful you got a bed, not a bridge, amen? But ungrateful people are always unhappy people. We need the spirit of David. When God told him he couldn't build a temple that he wanted to build to God, he didn't get angry and pout. He went to God and said, God, who am I that I should demand more of you? We need the spirit of Isaiah when he stood before God. He didn't say, oh, God, you picked the right guy to stand before you. I am the prophet. I am righteous. You got the right guy. He says, God, I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. Woe is me. I don't even look at you, God, because I'm not worthy for what you've given me. We have that spirit. We not only have access to the presence and the power of God, but we are insanely happy. When you are just thankful for what you have, you're not unhappy because you don't have what you think you deserve. Well, I deserve a better house. I deserve a better car. I deserve a better wife. I deserve a better job. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. You know, that's miserable. But saying, God, thank you for my, my house. May not be the nicest, but Lord, it's more than I deserve. Lord, it kept me dry last night. Kept me warm last night or cold last night because it's summertime and we have to sleep in the cold. Lord, thank you for my bed. It may not be, you know, a, a California king, but Lord, I, I have a place to sleep. I have a place to rest my head. Lord, thank you for my meal. Yeah, it's just hot dogs, but Lord, it's something. Grateful people are happy people. That is being poor in spirit. Now we got to quickly move to the rest. Verse number four. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. Now, Jesus doesn't say why we are mourning. He doesn't say blessed are those that mourn because something bad happened to them. He just says blessed are those that mourn, but this goes with being poor in spirit. When we, are, when we feel powerless, when we feel weak, when we feel unrighteous, you mourn and God comforts you. But it's more than that. Mourning is also a willingness to enter into the pain of others and mourn with them. Mourning is being connected to others. We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know, we know the, the story. Jesus, of course, he's using this story to show who is our neighbor. He just got done saying, you know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then this, this cocky lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? So he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. So the good Samaritan, this Jew is going down to Jericho. He passes through, he passes through this area and he gets mugged. These thieves come out, they, they beat him, they rob him, they leave him for dead. A priest comes by, sees the man, does nothing. A Levite comes by. Now, a priest, they're the, they're the, the, the religious leaders. They know what's supposed to, they don't, Levite, he's part of the religious elite too. He comes by. He sees the man, he does nothing. Next, a Samaritan comes by. Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. The Jews hated them because they were of Gentile and Jewish blood. They were a, I don't like saying that word, but they were different people, all right? They were Jew and Gentile together. They were, I don't want to say mixed, I don't know, anyway. They were mixed blood, all right? Jew and Gentile, it's not a way to say that where you don't sound like a jerk, but they were mixed blood, Jewish blood and Gentile blood. So the Jews hated them. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritan comes by. He sees a Jew, his arch enemy, hurt, bleeding, naked, dying. What does he do? He patches him up, he clothes him, he puts him on his, his donkey, he takes him into town, he buys him a hotel room, he feeds him, gives him water, goes to the innkeeper, says, hey, here's some money for a stay, here's some money, make sure he gets medical attention, make sure he's taken care of, make sure that he gets healthy, when I come back, I'll pay whatever I owe you. He goes above and beyond to help this man. He didn't have to stop and help. It was strange that he stopped and helped. He didn't know this guy. There were lots of excuses he could have used not to help. He had other things to do. It was dangerous and costly to do it. And look, I've noticed in my life, the older I get, the more isolated I get. When I was younger, I loved going to like concerts and fairs and amusement parks and places where crowds were and just meeting people and talking to people and interacting with people. Now, those things scare me to death. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to an amusement park. I don't want to go where there's a bunch of people. I want to go to an empty beach. I want to go, people are like, what would you do if you were on a deserted island all by yourself? Be so happy. Be like, thank you, Jesus. I can, no one's here to bother me. I want to go to a, a mountain where no one's at. I want to be secluded. 
And a lot of people are that way. They don't want to connect with new people. We don't want to open our lives up to people in need. We don't feel like we need other people. All we need, I just need my house, my vacation home, my family, my kids. If I have that, I don't need anything else. I'm fine just with us. Jesus is telling us we're never really going to be happy that way. When you close your heart to others, it closes in on itself. It gets more self-focused. When you refuse to mourn and allow other people into your life, you stop being poor in spirit. You miss the blessings of God. We were designed to pour ourselves into others. Blessed are those that open themselves up to others, that open their hearts and homes and share in the pain of others. You will never be happier. You will never be happy in this life until you enter into the pain of others and you help comfort them and you use your time and your talent and your resources to pour into the life of others. Blessed are those that mourn. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now meekness here doesn't mean someone who's weak-willed or, or, or pathetic or kind of mousy. Uh, you know, it's not someone who's easy taken advantage of. Here's what meekness is. Meekness is taking second place when you could have first. It is allowing yourself to be served last when you could be served first. It is intentionally serving others and not exalting yourself. It's best seen at the Last Supper. When Jesus enters into the upper room and the disciples are gathered around, what does Jesus do? He washes their feet. Even Judas's feet. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Creator, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, humbling himself and washing the feet of those that he created. He deserves the spot of master. He deserves the spot of Lord. But he intentionally took the role of servant. And because he did this, Paul says in Philippians 2, that God exalts Jesus above everybody else and gives him a name that is greater than every other name. When you take the role of servant, God exalts you. When you choose to be last, God puts you first. You know, think of it this way. If you're a parent, you're out with your kids, you're having a picnic with your children, and a needy child comes over and starts talking to your kid. Maybe they're homeless, maybe whatever's going on, but they're hungry. And your child, they give them some of their lunch. They give them half their sandwich. They've got five cookies. They give this kid three cookies. And they are sharing what they have with this person that's less fortunate. If one of my kids were to do that, I knew they wouldn't, but if one of my kids were to do that, if I see Connor, especially Lexi, man, Lexi don't give nothing to nobody, not even me. But if I saw Lexi take three of her cookies and give them to someone who, who had less and she only had two, she'd get every cookie she ever wanted for the rest of her life. 
I'd be so proud of her that, man, she gave what she didn't have to give. She gave more than she even should have given to help someone else. I'm going to give everything I can to her. That's how God treats us. When he sees us look at the resources, we, and again, we've all got limited resources. We all have finite income. We all have limited abilities and time and treasure. And when God sees us look at what we have and say, you know what, I could, could really use this for myself. I could really, I need this, and, but I'm, I'm going to take what little I have and I'm going to use it to bless someone else. God says, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to bless you even more. You cannot outgive God. Now, that is not, in the, I'm not saying you want to get rich. I'm not wanting, you want to get rich? Give me more so I can have a plane. No, don't give me more. Don't give me nothing. But what I'm saying is when we're stingy with what we have, God's stingy in what he blesses us with. But when we open up our hands and say, God, you gave it to me. I'm going to help someone else. God says, well, I'm going to give you what I can to help you even more. I'm going to bless you because you blessed other people. You cannot outgive God. You cannot give too much away in God's economy. So how would your life look different if you always put yourself last? How would this world look different if all of God's children said, I'm going to put myself last and help everyone before me? I'm going to be meek. Even if I think I deserve a higher position, a higher place, a higher serving, I'm going to let someone else go before me. I'm going to put others first. God says, blessed are those that give of themselves and trust God to take care of them. Look at verse number six. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So the hunger and thirst for righteousness means you crave fellowship with God over everything else in life. God created us to hunger after him. Solomon says that God created us with eternity in our hearts. That means every person who's ever been born has a God-shaped hole in their soul and the only thing that will fill it is fellowship with him. Now, we all try to fill that hole with something, with money, with relationships, with approval, with the praise of man, but our soul longs for something that only eternity can fill. Money can't fill it. Relationships can't fill it. Approval can't fill it. Stuff can't fill it. Only God can fill that hole. Those who hunger for approval never get enough and they become proud, bitter people obsessed with themselves. Again, you crave praise all the time, you stop being poor in spirit. When you give your passion of your heart to God, not only are you satisfied, but you become a life-giving person. Let's move on. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The merciful are those who extend forgiveness or extend generosity in the same amount it has been extended to them by God. What if 
God forgave your sins the same way you forgave people who offended you. What if God's forgiveness was based on how you forgave others? I don't know about you, but I probably would be not ever have my sins forgiven. But God doesn't base his forgiveness of me on how I forgive other people. God is faithful and just to forgive all our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Even the sins we do over and over and over and over and over again, when we seek his forgiveness, he gives it. We are to forgive other people the same way we have been forgiven. But, but they hurt me. I, look, I understand. I've been hurt by people, deeply wounded by people, but none of them ever hung me on a cross and forced me to go to hell for them. But that's what I did to him. That's what I did to Jesus. And he forgave me. He forgives me every time I mess up and come to him. He forgives us. That's the forgiveness we are to all. God, Jesus tells us we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. The merciful offer forgiveness and offer generosity the same way that has been given to them by God. Look at verse number eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now the pure in heart those are those that keep their hearts free of things that grieve God. What grieves God? Sin in your life grieves God. Impurity in your entertainment grieves God. Unforgiveness in your spirit grieves God. Bitterness in your soul grieves God. Look, there's a lot of reasons to avoid sin, but the biggest reason to avoid sin is it keeps us from fellowshipping with God. God says, you have unconfessed sin in your life, I will not hear you. I will resist you. I will be separated from you because of your sin. That's the biggest reason to confess our sin when we do it. Sin affects your ability to perceive God, to see God. Sin affects your ability to hear God. Purity leads to clarity. Purity in your life leads to clarity in your relationship with God. So when we struggle with seeing God or knowing his will or hearing his voice, because our heart has sin in it that we need to deal with. Purity leads to clarity. The more your heart is free from idolatry and lust, the more you will see God. Look at verse number nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. A peacemaker is someone who prioritizes relationship over personal vindication. When you have conflict with two people, and that conflict is ongoing, it's because you have two sides that both feel like they're right. And if they admit they're, they're not right, they're gonna feel bad. So nobody wants to give in. Nobody wants to admit that they may not be right. No one, neither can make peace because they both feel like their side is going to lose or they're going to end up being wrong. So a peacemaker 
is someone who says, I value our relationship more than being right. So let me see your way. Let me, let me look at this from your point of view. I'm going to try to understand your point of view more than I'm going to make you see mine. I'm going to try to understand what you're saying and what you're feeling more than I'm going to say, I don't care. This is what you've done to me. This is how I feel. Peacemakers are like Jesus. Look, in every conflict that Jesus was ever in, he was always right. How do you know that? Because he's God. I don't care what the conflict was. Every conflict, he was right. Everyone else was wrong. Bible says you were born in conflict to God. You were wrong. He is always right. What did he do? He died for you. He said, I'm right, but I value a relationship with you more than just proving my point. So I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be buried and rise again to redeem you with God the Father. Because more than me proving my point that I am right and you are wrong, I want a relationship with you. Because once you have that relationship, you're going to see I'm right and you're wrong. But the relationship is more important than vindication. He prioritized our relationship over everything. Look at verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted. Now, there's a key here. Not just being persecuted, not being persecuted because you're a jerk or something. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, again, not because you're just a mean-spirited person, but blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall speak all, say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Again, people always talk bad about me and say I'm a jerk. That's because you're a jerk. But you're blessed when people talk bad about you because you love Jesus so much. Look, if somebody's going to say something bad about you, let it be say, he's just, he's too Christ-like. That's what it is. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted though they the prophets which bore before you. Now, there's a lot I can say about this one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it in this. Blessed are those that value being right with God over everything else in life. They value being right with God over what? Their family, their friends, their coworkers, society, everybody else says. We are all going to suffer. We're all going to die one day. If Jesus doesn't come back, all of us are going to die. Let at least, what Jesus is saying here is, since you're going to suffer, suffer for things that are right. Suffer for things that please God. Suffer knowing you please God and have eternity to look forward to as your reward for your suffering. You know, Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus suffered on the cross with joy because he knew what he was accomplishing. He endured the scourging, the ridicule, the pain, the humiliation, 
the nails through his hands, the nails through his feet. The, the, every, when they lifted him up, the Bible says every socket came out of joint. He has had excruciating pain. He endured being separated from God the Father. He did it with joy because he knew he was doing it to save us. He suffered knowing he was suffering for eternity. Blessed are those that see their suffering as a way for God to be glorified and his kingdom to be built. Now, there are two, two quick thoughts, and I literally mean quick. I want to see in these from this passage. Here's the first one. Number one, happiness doesn't come from your circumstances. Happiness doesn't come from your circumstances because your circumstances are going to change. Look, everything in your life may be going great right now. You're healthy. Your bank account's full. Everything's going well. You just got a new car. Life's going great. Your relationship with, it, with your wife's good. Your mother-in-law moved out. Everything's going great. Guess what? Wonderful. Enjoy it. Ain't going to last. You're going to get sick. Car's going to break down. House roof's going to leak. Mother-in-law's going to come back and move in. Life's going to get bad. And if your joy is only found in when things are going good, you're going to live a, live a miserable life. Joy is not found in circumstances. Your joy is found, your happiness is found in a relationship with God. Because your circumstance can be taken away. Your relationship with God never can. Happiness comes from being close to God and allowing him to work through every circumstance of life for his purposes. Second thing, number two, happiness is a response to the gospel. Remember, at the beginning I said one of the most important details about this story was where Jesus taught from. He went up into a mountain to teach these lessons to the people. Jesus, what he is in this teachings, he is teaching the law of God. He constantly refers back, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he is constantly referring back to the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. He is showing that the law he is given giving and the law that Moses was given was given for the same purpose. Now, a lot of people think, well, God gave the Israelites the law, he gave them the Ten Commandments to show them how to live, to earn salvation, to earn his, his righteousness. To earn. And look, the law that he gives in Deuteronomy, it was given as a taskmaster to teach him that they couldn't live up to it. But I'm talking the Ten Commandments. God moves on Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments. Those were given to show them if they do these ten things, then God will bless them and then God will save them. But the law was given to Israel after they had been saved. After God delivered them from Egypt. After God delivered them from slavery, then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He was showing them how they were supposed to live because they had been saved. Because they had been redeemed, this is how they, that's what the Beatitudes are. Jesus is saying, because you've been redeemed, this is what your life should look like. Because you've been saved, 
this is what you should look like. They don't give us a list of things to do to earn salvation. It shows how we're supposed to live because we have been saved. You can look at it like this way. Because Jesus saved us, we can be poor in spirit because we know he promises to provide everything. Because Jesus saved us, we can enter into other people's pain and mourn with them because that's what he did for us. Because Jesus saved us, we can be meek and put others first because that's what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus saved us, we can hunger and thirst for righteousness because God, the God of righteousness, has become our Savior. Because Jesus saved us, we can't help but be merciful to others because that's what he's done to us. Because Jesus saved us, we want to be pure in heart so we can know him more. Because Jesus saved us, we can prioritize peace instead of vindication because that's what he did for us. Because Jesus saved us, we can endure persecution because Jesus' resurrection shows us that it is worth it. If you look at the Beatitudes, if you look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as a checklist of things to do to be right with God, you're going to live a hopeless, miserable life. You can never do them good enough to earn the favor of God. But that's not what they're for. These eight things are not rungs of a ladder you climb to get to God. They are a grateful response to Jesus for coming down that ladder to save us by taking our place on the cross. You know, someone told C.S. Lewis that I don't, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. He replied, of course you don't. No one likes the sledgehammer that destroys their house. But they help you see the need for grace. And then in response to his gracious act of saving me, these things come more naturally. So that leads us to two questions. First of all, have you ever received Jesus as your Savior? Because that's where this starts. You're never going to be poor in spirit if you don't have Christ as your Savior. You're never going to be meek. You're never going to be, be, be merciful. You're never going to be any of those things until you have accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin. Until you realize, Lord, I am poor in spirit and cannot save myself, but you did for me what I could not do, and you accept his gift, then you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you that can help you live out these eight things. That's where it starts. So if you have accepted him as your Savior... Have you started on a life of discipleship? Because it's characterized by these eight things. Are you ready for these eight things to shape your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.